Before we open God's word for the second time, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we again have this opportunity this afternoon to look into thy word, and we pray that thy spirit would be here among us, that he would be the one who brings forth the message, and that it would not be my own ideas or thoughts, but that it would be thy spirit, Heavenly Father, speaking through mortal lips. Be with us now as we divide the word together and be with those that were not able to join us this afternoon hour. Uh, Bless them in spite of their absence, Heavenly Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've opened to the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading farther into the chapter. Starting with verse 14. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things." Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient." I've read to verse 28. We see that the world today is not all that much different than 
the world of Apostle Paul's time. The issues at the center of man, at the heart of society and, and the heart of man is really the issues of the heart. It's been said before that the heart of every issue is the issue of the heart. It seems that there are basically two types of people in the world, of natural man. I'm not talking about the saved and the unsaved. Apostle Paul says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. There are materialists, people that believe only what they can see and sense with their senses. And then there is another group of people that believe that there is more that is beyond the reach of our senses. Those are the two basic groups, I think, of, of men and women. From there, then, we can begin talking about the invisible one who is God himself. But how we believe, if we believe there is more than our senses can, can tell us, our natural senses, that will lead us down one path of reasoning. But if we believe that this world is all there is and my senses are the only thing that I can use to discern uh, my existence, then that's going to lead you also in a different path. From that, from that decision, from that understanding of the world, you will come to two very different conclusions. The materialist will say this world is all there is. Once you die, that's it. Your body decomposes and you return to the uh, raw materials that you're made up of, and that's it. Life itself is pointless, has no intrinsic meaning, and it's up, for, up to you to enjoy what you, what you can from your existence, and when you decide that your existence has become too tedious, then simply to end it, and it makes no difference. For one who believes in something beyond what your senses can understand and perceive, there's a different line of thinking. A meaning comes not from the natural world, but from ideals, virtues, and values. And then, of course, there must be uh, this is according to, to, to moral law. And then, of course, if you were to continue down that path, you would reach the point where you would say, no, there must, if there is moral law, there must also be a moral law giver. Some originator of a universal set of moral laws. Those are the two general streams. Those two streams... Uh, Paul talks by talking about the Greeks and the barbarians, and that simply meant the learned and the unlearned. Those that reasoned and thought and came to their own conclusions and those that had been untutored. And it's interesting to me that The unlearned men and women in this world 
seem to have a better grasp of the spiritual than the learned. When the gospel is taken to a group of, of, of people, I'm thinking of, for instance, Papua New Guinea, when the, when the gospel was brought to those in the, in, the, in the highlands that had never had interaction with what we would call the civilized world. They already had an existing understanding of, of morality, of the idea of justice, uh, of these, these spiritual concepts that we have, and it seems only the, the ones who have received a great deal of education that seem to be able to wholeheartedly embrace a materialistic worldview. I don't know why that is, other than to simply say that God made us spiritual creatures. And the spirit in us naturally responds to the spirit of God that's manifest in creation. <clears throat> and it takes a great deal of learning and reasoning to divorce ourselves from that. And it, it, it comes true. Like it says in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. There's a problem with those who would adopt a fully materialistic worldview. They run into all sorts of problems because they acknowledge there are things that cannot be measured. Consciousness is one of them. Personhood, the idea of personhood. The, uh, the basis for, for morality of any kind, few people would like to completely get rid of morality. But if we talk about morals as if they exist and they cannot be sensed with our senses, is it really part, should it be part of a materialistic worldview? So in that, in that climate, Paul writes these things and he, he, he writes what happens the farther that, that, that men and women move from the idea of, of God, one who is the source of all things, the farther you get away from that, what, what happens with those ideas? And Paul was a very educated man, not only in the things of the law, or he had received instruction at the feet of Gamaliel, as we all know, or most of us know, <clears throat> But he also seems to be well-read in the, in the writings of the poets. He was able to quote the Greek poets to the Greeks in Athens, and uh, he was very aware of the philosophies of the day and seems could speak uh, intelligently about them. But he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, on its face, the world would say, you've got plenty to be ashamed about when you talk about the gospel of Christ. It sounds so ridiculous, the idea of somebody who lived a perfect life. I mean, that in itself is already questionable. But then died and rose again from the dead and then disappeared and says he's coming again. I mean, this sounds like some fantastic fairy tale. This sounds ridiculous. But Paul saw the practical outworkings of that same gospel. 
He saw it first in his own life when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus. And he saw it in the lives of those who changed from darkness to light again and again. And he recognized that the worldview that he embraced was not just a theoretical one, but was one that was personal, practical, and could be lived out in in, in this fallen world. He said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He saw those who had, uh, were looking for a, for, for, a, for a meaning, for an understanding in life of morality, and that included the Jewish people. There was an understanding already in the Old Testament that the system of sacrifices was not enough and was not a permanent solution. David himself said, Thou dost not require sacrifice, else would I give it. The cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Solomon realized that no matter how magnificent a temple he would construct for the Lord, it was still not worthy of his glory. And anything that they would do, by extension, anything that they would do there in that temple, any sacrifice they they offered, would never be sufficient. The pattern, like I said at the conclusion of this morning's service, was that this was a a temporary solution, much like the tabernacle was a temporary solution to a place of worship that was going to find its fulfillment in the construction of the permanent temple in Jerusalem where God would put his name. Well, in the bigger scheme of things, that that first system of the law and its sacrifice was was a temporary solution that was going to find its resolution in Jesus Christ. In that once offered sacrifice for all time. The gospel would answer the concerns of the Jewish mind, the one who was religious and wanted to do the things that the law said, that wanted to be righteous in the eyes of the Lord. But he saw that it also answered the intellectual questions of the Greeks. And it's interesting, after... After Paul's sermon on Mars Hill concludes, it says, some of them mocked when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. And of course, that's a common response that you will get among those who are uh, the learned in this world. <coughs> it says, others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. But it says, of the rest, there were, there were, there were some women, and then it mentions a few others, and I, I remember just uh, by memory, there was Dionysius the Oropagite, who also believed. So there were still those there, who turned to the Lord and realized the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ and what it was pointing to. Here's the, here's the difference. Here's the proof, I believe, that the gospel is, contains the power that, that, that uh, Christ says it, it, it has. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And if you look at those words, it really says, the just shall live by their faithfulness. The the proof of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the changed lives that result from sincere believing. When the gospel came, 
to those tribes in New Guinea, the Wahala people and, and, and others. I remember the stories from uh, uh, Brother Vic Schlaughter. <clears throat> These men who had engaged in headhunting and horrible warfare for generations, untold generations, laid down their weapons and took them up no more. They followed Christ on that path of loving their enemies and doing good to those that despitefully used them. The stories of Elizabeth Elliot, Hudson Taylor, others. The self-sacrifice and the change in behavior, even men like Paul Bunyan, I've just started reading his autobiography. It's, it's titled, The Grace of God Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. That's the title of it. And by his own admission, what a, what a horrible man he was. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, they called him the great blasphemer. The power of God is in its effect on the lives of those who believe and do. Because intellectual assent is never enough where God is concerned. It's not enough to say I understand and therefore I believe. It's I, it's I believe and therefore I do. You see, these other philosophies, including materialism, has no practical outworking that will better mankind. Because when push comes to shove, there is no meaning for anything, so do what you can that makes you happy and don't worry about damnation. God shows us things about himself in creation. And that includes on, for the inner man as well as for the outer man. <clears throat> These things are impermanent. We know that one day this creation will be dissolved. But today we can still see things that are true about God in the world around us. We can look to the animal kingdom and learn lessons about the creator, learn lessons about self-sacrifice and and love. We can look to the uh, stars and learn about the greatness of the God who, who, who made them and the, and the perfection with which he has balanced these things. We can look within us and, and, and think about what motivates us and what touches us deeply and realize that there must be a God that gave us these feelings that have such a dramatic impact, not just on, the, on our inside. I mean, psychologists will tell you how you, how you feel, how you process uh, grief and, and, and betrayal and trauma will have physical effects on your own body. If that's not an argument against materialism, I don't know what is. You're more than just a sum of the atoms that make up your physical body. I think most of us understand that. But man doesn't really like the implications of that. Because, of course, if he is more, if he is a created being made in the image of God, what does that mean for his life? 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. When God reveals himself to you, when you begin to realize that he is there. You can never return to the state of ignorance you were in before. It doesn't work. You cannot 
unlearn that. Having experienced God, having, be, having seen a little light, you need to either now go into greater light, seek after God, and find the source of that light, or you will willingly decide to go back into darkness. And that darkness is, is, is not just a, um, an innocent ignorance, as I said already. It's an intentional turning away from God, and it's the height of foolishness, because it leads to self-destruction. So realizing that God could be seen in creation, but not liking the implications of what God meant, what that would mean for man, man chooses to put his adoration uh, elsewhere, ultimately to himself. He, he, he lifts up self. But in that, in that world and in that time, it says, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. The religions the world over have picked... Um, all sorts of gods and goddesses to uh, be objects of their worship. And of course, they all look like something for out of this natural world. Even the Hindu gods and goddesses that are pretty fantastic looking, they're all assembled out of parts of recognizable creatures. It's easier to worship and to serve the creature more than it is the creator. The creature is within the grasp of man. The creator is above it. And if I'm to properly worship the creator, I must join him. I can't bring him down to my level. Christ came to show us the example, but the intent that Christ, in Christ's coming and showing us that example was to draw us to the Father, to show us the Father, to have a right understanding of who he was. What happens when we turn away from that? What happens when we have a wrong idea of God? Well, you don't have to look too far into this world. Slogans like love is love. No, God is love. When you change definitions, when... When there is a desire to find worth and value that's divorced from the Creator, it, it, it ends up with some very odd, um, it ends up in some very odd places. In the end, we only need to look at the lives of those who embrace some of these philosophies to see what the result is. Why is it that some of these groups have abnormally high rates of suicide or self-harm. What drives that? God has put these moral laws in motion and they're really not a whole lot different than the character of the natural laws that govern the physical world, the laws of gravity, of light, of energy, you can defeat them for a while, but it will require continual effort. If you get on a, a, a plane weighing, I don't know how many tons the average airliner weighs, yes, it can defy gravity for quite a while. But when the fuel runs out, the plane comes down. 
It's the same way with those who would defy the laws of God. You can run from them for a while, and maybe for a while it's looking like you're getting your own way. You're having your cake and eating it too. But eventually, eventually, those laws of God win out, and you see what they are. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He says, my soul has no pleasure in that. Can you imagine that? The God who is justice tells us that he has no delight, no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but that he would turn from his evil ways. The goodness of God never leads to a a, a blind intolerance. There's always a desire that someone would turn. The world, of course, is slow to learn those things. The ancient world struggled with them, and apparently here we are 2,000 years, some almost 2,000 years later, and we still haven't figured it out. We're still trying to, as a society to come up with our own philosophies that do not involve God. And we're finding out it doesn't work so well. It's interesting to me that organizations and companies, and countries for that matter, that will adopt the principles of the, of the, of the laws of God into their, into, their, into their country's laws, into their organization's uh, uh, values and guiding principles, they also receive the benefit of them. The people that live there or work for those types of corporations are happier, uh, better citizens, better employees than ones that do not. Why is that? You want proof of the invisible God? That's one of them. If you don't think God exists, try to live against his laws and see what happens. You'll find out it's a lot like that plane. You're expending a lot of energy to fight something that's leading you in another direction. Paul, Paul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You'll find how that was true for Paul, and it's true for anyone who will who will try to work contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul saw that. It broke him. And he became perhaps the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, taking that gospel to not just the the base and the simple, but also to to the powerful and to the intellectual. He spoke before emperors, before kings and magistrates. And he was not ashamed. And so we don't have to be ashamed either of the gospel of Christ. It's like one of the early Anabaptist leaders, I think it might have been Menno Simons, who said, we don't speak great things, we live them. And that has always been the truth of the gospel. Though there have been learned men, intelligent men and women who have been uh, effective apologists for the gospel of Christ, in the end, the proof of the gospel is in the living of it. And where the gospel is not lived out and someone calls themselves a Christian... They're a liar. The kids learned that this morning. Let's not injure the cause of Christ by not living the way that we should. The world needs to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ so desperately because it's in such a mess. In some ways, I think we're worse off than it was during the time of the Romans.
especially when we know what we already know from history. Let's show the world what the gospel of Christ means by, by living it, by living it in a way that's effective. Would a brother please select to him? For the Lord. Lord God, how blessed we are that we can gather together to be able to hear thy word. Lord, thy word is simple, and thy word is easy to understand. Lord, we oftentimes look around us, and yet we wonder how did things start, how did things end. But Lord, from dust we were created, and to dust we shall return. Lord, you are in control of all things in our lives, and Lord, we pray that you would eradicate sin out of our lives, Help us to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we may serve you, love you, and be made pure by your love. Heavenly Father, help us to be an example unto others of what thy goodness is like when you live in us and you change our hearts and conform us into what you would want us to be. Help us to be kind, loving, and most importantly, forgiving of one another as thou hast forgiven us. Lord, continue to be with us throughout this week. Give us strength and hope and guide us in our lives, in our daily lives, in our daily walk with you, that we may grow and that we may draw closer to you. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does one receive this power of the gospel? to change their lives. It's the great mystery. I can only tell you how it happened with me. But the way that it happened with me, Paul also records in the seventh chapter of Romans, and the solution comes in the eighth. Try to live according to the laws of God. You already know what they are. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you and persecute you. Christ taught them all in the Sermon on the Mount. You can read them for yourself. You will find quickly that you are incapable of living them on your own. No matter how good you think those, those, those laws of God are, you'll join the Apostle Paul as he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall free me from this body of death? The solution comes in the surrender, in the realization that right living is impossible in our fallen nature, and that is exactly the reason why Christ had to suffer and die on that cruel cross. And when I die with him, I experience that same resurrection power that he did. When I finally give up, surrender. Say, God, I cannot do it. It's not within me. In that fertile ground, he can begin to work. The early Christians shook the ancient world from that small group in the upper room, that 120 or so. This movement exploded and went to every corner of the Roman Empire.
in spite of intense persecution and horrible suffering. How? Secular scholars don't really have a good solution. They can just report it as a, as a fact. We know this happened. We know what the Romans said. You know, they said things like this about these early Christians. In spite of the, the, the most inhumane torture and treatment, they do not deny their Lord. And these are not the, the, the strong men. They're, he said specifically in this, in, this, in this anecdote, and I'm paraphrasing, it was weak women and young people that were willing to suffer this. And they, they endured more than the, than the hardened convicts did in their own prison system. They were able to tolerate this, this torture. They couldn't understand it. The ancient Romans couldn't understand it. Because they were seeing the work of an invisible God. That's all the proof that God gives. Like I've said before, if God were to show up and you were be, to be able to see him, your will would have no room anymore. It pleases God that you bend your will to his, even as his son did in the garden. That's the same path. Understanding what God wants from us is best understood by looking at Christ. When we can see that, we can appreciate that, we can submit to him, and he also can give us the power to bear our cross, even as Christ did, and to join him in glory and in resurrection. May God grant all of us the grace that we need to live that way, because without his grace it's impossible. May God dismiss us now with his blessing. In the name of his Son, amen.